Welcome to a very special live edition of the On The Way podcast. What a day this is. My name is Dom Fay. Uh, Sue Grimmett is here, uh, as always. And Sue, it's been a very special day so far, as we're about to explain, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been a wonderful day um, spent in Padre's company and um, in many good conversations, including the seminar this afternoon, which um, many of us here have shared in. And uh, Peter Cat is here as well. Peter, thank you so much for hosting us in your very beautiful cathedral. Well, it's our cathedral, it's your cathedral, and it's a delight to have it being used for something so beautiful. Well, uh, we'll get straight into things then. Uh, we have a lovely crowd here, all gathered, excited for this conversation. And uh, we'll ask this crowd now maybe to welcome our guest today, Podrick Otuma. Podrick, we are so, so thrilled to be able to share a conversation with you in person, in the flesh. This all began with an email trying to set up a Zoom podcast in uh, mid-late 2022, and you happened to mention, hey, I'm actually coming to Australia, and an idea was planted. What if we flew you to Brisbane, and and here you are? So to begin with, thank you so much for for agreeing to this adventure. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks Um, to the Cathedral and everyone for being here. Yeah. Uh, look, we're going to explore, I guess, the power of language to name, explore and liberate our human journey in different ways in the conversation ahead. To begin with, though, you wear many hats and have worn many hats over the journey. Um, poet, theologian, podcaster, conflict mediator, Catholic, non-religious. Um, how do you speak about yourself generally and, and what you do in the world? Um, normally, I just say that I, I write a bit and speak a bit. Yeah, my, um, people ask my dad, what do I do? And he says, not even God knows. So, uh, yeah, so I uh, yeah, just work a bit in radio, work a bit in books. That's the easiest way to say it. Has it, has yeah. it changed much over the years? Would you oh, have described yeah. yourself differently 20 years ago? Oh, totally. I mean, for a long time, I worked as a community worker in Belfast in conflict resolution. So that was absolutely it. Poetry and writing it and studying theology has been part of things for a long time, but sure none of those bring in any money and so half the time people just want to know uh, a, a one word answer about what to do and so I rarely have that so I usually just make something up you know, I, I was a chaplain for a while that was a nice easy answer um, uh, and then yeah community work it was another easy answer for a while too so yeah. well your work has um, moved and touched so many people so deeply the three of us very much included in that and uh, we're going to we're so thrilled we're going to ha- hear a few of your poems through the conversation yeah. ahead um, as well, but but I'm curious as you look at the journey you've been on, and you, you talked about a few different jobs there and a few different roles you've held. If if I asked you what the common thread that has run through all the various jobs is, do you have a, a clear answer for, yeah. for that? Yeah, it's always language for me. So conflict resolution, whether that's within the context of the north of Ireland, where you're looking at the long legacy of British-Irish conflict or in the context of working with clergy who in public have been very um, very resistant to LGBTQI plus people being in public. In all of those contexts, it's been about language. Um, the language, the power of language to, um, to, to destroy or the power of language to open up curiosity, um, to be vulnerable to the practice of language, the practice of asking a good question, practice of asking a question where you know you don't know the answer rather than a trapping question and so for me conflict mediation and theology and poetry are all the exploration of language yeah 
Beautiful. I actually have Sue to thank, Podrick, for being across your work. Sue, I think for probably about 18 months, um, would text me on a fortnightly basis something about Podrick Otuma. Podrick Otuma. My so you, might have, <laughs> you might have a fangirl sitting there next to you. Um, but, but so I'd like to ask you, when did you come across Podrick and what is it about, about his work that resonated so deeply with you? You know, I have actually trouble remembering now because um, I was aware of your work in the Peace and Reconciliation, Corrie Miller. Um, but I think w- what has really captured me is the capacity of poetry to surprise me and the way that you use language that surprised me. And as someone who's spent a lot of time studying philosophy and theology, to have something that kind of cut through my settled ways of thinking and would un- upset it and help me to see a new way. And it was always, always a gentle and liberating way, I think, which has kept me following your work. Mm. Beautiful. Um, speaking of conflict mediation, you have been in some very dangerous settings in your life, uh, and it's probably a poet might not be the first person people would expect to find themselves in the middle of conflict, <laughs> in the middle of, um, for example, going to a place like Uganda to, to have discussions around um, LGBTIQ plus inclusion. Uh, what's that, that journey been like for you to, to rock up somewhere, you know, not with a machine gun or not with a armed security necessarily, but with, with poetry? Well, I am interested in what language can do. So, like in, in, in the north of Ireland, there's, there's hundreds of years of history of the presence of, of British people in the north of Ireland, and then Ireland was partitioned 100 years ago. So there's a, there's a long legacy of partition, of murder, of state-sponsored violence, and then traumatized families within the context of that. And so... How is it that people who have been bereaved, no matter what side they come from, bereaved people are bereaved people? And how can you be brave with language in those contexts? That's, that's a question for me, how not to be frightened and how to think about um, conversations with people who might be continuing to take up arms in an armed conflict. How can you use language in a way that's it's simple, simple language, but an invitation to, to think about um, what the language is doing? And then I had been concerned uh, for a number of years about what was happening in Uganda. Um, there had been, it has now passed in the last couple of um, weeks, there had been in 2013, 2014, uh, a, a bill that was kind of popularly called Kill the Gays, uh, punishing LGBTQI people with the death penalty. Um, and that was passing through Parliament. So I got involved in an initiative working with uh, 35 people who all had given public support to the death penalty. Um, they, these were all people of the Christian religion, and they were using Christian religion to justify the proposition and their support of, uh, of the death penalty for, um, for people like me. And so I um, yeah, was curious as to whether we could do an engagement to say, well, if you're using the text to justify what you say is justifiable, how about we look at the damn text, read it closely, and see if you really are reading it. Let's, let's have a look at the question about marginalized people in the text. Are marginalized people to be murdered, or does the text propose something different? I'd done a master's looking at the Gospel of Mark through the lens of art. I was interested in the characterization of marginalized characters in that literature. And you can make a strong argument that the marginalized characters are not merely to be tolerated, but actually they're the exemplars of a certain kind of courage and bravery which is to be followed rather than just tolerated. And so for me, the question 
wasn't does you know it wasn't that people who were Christian um, shouldn't be supporting the death penalty. Of course, that's obvious. The question was to say your Christianity should move you away from it to deepen. You, if you are a Christian, it, to deepen your Christianity should mean that you are absolutely opposed to the idea of putting people through the death penalty. And so I was interested in working to see whether an intervention in that way would work. I was frightened, of course, but I was curious too. And also I had the privilege, an Irish passport, a go bag ready. And so I could go any time I wished. I probably would have had a hairy few hours, but that was it. It wouldn't have mattered. It's fascinating to me, though, because this wasn't a sort of a separate issue to you that you could stand at a distance from and look at and, yeah. and you know, observe in a, in a sense. This is something that you've written extensively and spoken extensively about, um, was a, a wrestle, a journey that you had yourself yeah. or through yeah. younger years in charismatic churches where yeah. um, your, your sexuality was demonized and exorcisms and these sorts of things yeah. were, were done to you. How sensitive is that to, I guess, take what is a real personal wound for you and work with that on a, almost a political level? Uh, a, a little anecdote. I'm a, I'm a terrible person for remembering dates, as in, not that I forget them, I remember them all. So I was, I was in uh, Uganda on the 20th anniversary of my first public exorcism. So there we are, for being wow. gay. Um, uh, for me, it's not a wound being gay. For me, it's an accusation towards a world that has been... Um, that has been intolerant and violent. For me, uh, to do this work is to hold up a mirror to people who are heterosexual, to say, look at what you've created, look at what you've tolerated, and look at how much it takes from those of us who aren't to call your attention to the, to the violent side of what some people say is just, oh, my concern, or you know, mild concern um, like that has deathly consequences. And so, yeah, for me, it's not about, of course, it's always been political. Like when you're told as a teenager you're going to hell, you know, or that you'll die of AIDS and these terrible things that were being said, um, that's not, the lie is that it's a personal wound. The, the, the reality is that this is a systemic, in, ingrained public language of heterosexuality that needs to be challenged. I'm happy to challenge heterosexuals in terms of the way that they speak in public. It isn't all, but I wish more straight people are speaking up now, which is good, but I wish it didn't take so many of us to have called your attention to doing it. As someone who's read quite a bit of your work now, the, the thread that seems to come through quite a lot is this bravery almost to, to speak truth um, where others maybe, for whatever reason, have been too timid to or too comfortable to. Um, what do you think... Cause you do write a lot about the importance of being able to name things honestly. Yeah. To walk into a place and name what's going on here, what's, what's animating the energy of these people, um, that, that there is something that, un, that gets unlocked when you name things honestly. What do you think it is that makes naming things honestly so difficult for us humans? I, I mean, I find it very difficult too. I, I don't in any way feel like I have any skill um, to do it. I, I suppose I try a lot. <laughs> I fail a lot. Um, I try it for myself, too, and in my friendships. Um, there's something about naming something that can be a relief once you can name it, um, where I can feel called to account, where uh, you can think, oh, my God, thank God, the ice has been broken, or that, that, that awkward, you know, with a group of friends, or something's going on, and everybody's kind of walking around feeling awkward, and somebody eventually says, what is up? 
Yes. And people are like, oh my God, thank God you asked it. That's a naming. You know, you just say something and people can sometimes feel like, oh, the thing has been said. Or, you know, we're all awkward about this, so we don't know what to do, what to do about that. There's a relief that can happen because um, to not say something can be a burden. And so to f- when that happens in a, in a culture or in a systemic way, um, that can be a tremendous burden, not just on individuals, but on many people. And so to, I'm always in awe of people who, can, who have the courage or the audacity or the insight to, to just kind of name the thing. I, I, I'm in such awe of people who can do that. Uh, and I, I think that's an act of language. So it's an old thing. You find that in, in the old poetry of the book of Genesis, this desire, this curiosity to, to put into the mouth of the God character the capacity to name things. And so that shows, I think, the human curiosity about what it means to name. In that characterization, the God names something and things come into being. And I think that shows the early poetry had a fascination with the, the power of language and what happens when something, somebody's able to say something. That, I think, is an invitation to anybody to practice the power of language when it comes to our friendships or where we live or our politics, etc. Peter, we've been doing this podcast for six years almost now, I think, the On The Way podcast, and if there's one thing that's come up maybe more than any other, it is the importance of truth-telling and this idea that if you gather any group of people, a family, a society, a friendship group, and you have a list of questions that you can't ask and things you can't talk about, that's often where the energy is, that's often where the, what's really running the show. What do you think we need um, to be able to, in our families, our friendship groups, our perhaps it is congregations in a church context, workplaces, to be able to, to speak truthfully and, and name the things that are, that are sort of underpinning the whole thing? Um, well, I think first and foremost we have to uh, be enabled to see that we belong um, despite what we think. We, I think we have in our culture, and increasingly in our culture, this idea that uh, you have to think a particular thing in order to belong, um, and it's certainly true in lots of churches. Um, recently, I've been working with someone who has escaped a church that's very narrow, and in our first conversation, which went for an hour, four times she had to say to me, "I know, I know the answer to this question, but I have to answer it." Is there a basic understanding of the incarnation that I have to have in order to belong to your church? And I said, well, no. She said, I knew that would be the case. Is there a basic understanding of the meaning of the cross that I have to have to belong to your church? Is there a basic um, understanding of the meaning of the resurrection? And there was this. Is there a basic understanding of the word sin that I have to have in order to come to this church? Um, and for her, it was the fear that if she held a, or was inquiring, if she was curious, and you know, Podrick talks a lot about curiosity, that if she was curious, she might be told that she can't belong in this place. So I think the really important thing is we establish the idea that people belong full stop. Mm. And then that creates the space in which honesty, inquiry, curiosity... Um, questions um, can can be enabled to flourish. That probably leads us beautifully into the first poem. We're going to um, invite you to to read of yours, Podrick. This is a 
one about being able to speak the truth that I think in religious contexts often people who've grown up in them feel as though they can't say certain things, believe certain things, have certain doubts or questions that you have to toe the party line uh, all the way through. And, um, and this poem, Feed the Beast of yours, which I believe is a, a relatively newer poem, yeah. um, it sort of beautifully captures this idea of, of the wrestle between what you're meant to think or meant to believe and what's actually going on inside of you. Can you speak a bit about it and, and read that for us? Well, um, you know, you get this phrase, don't feed the beast um, sometimes. Don't feed the beast and um, I've been curious about going, well, what if the beast is hungry? And who is the beast? I, I spent a lot of time over the last number of years thinking in an artistic way about what it was like to be told I had devils in me. And I was curious about the devils and the beasts in me. What if they're hungry? What do they have to say? What are their curiosities? And so I spent, I suppose, 10 years writing poems, imagining a conversation and an engagement with a beast uh, a beast that is one of me. I am many people, of course. And um, yeah, so this is a, an exploration of hunger, I suppose, and, and what it's like to attune to hunger, especially hungers that you were told you shouldn't have. Maybe that's a hunger for sex. Maybe that's a hunger for connection. It's a hunger, I think, too, um, for agnosticism and a hunger mm. to be able to tell the truth and move away from demands of certitude. So feed the beast. Back when I believed God would speak to me, God spoke to me and asked me who I thought I was keeping happy. I was keeping a six-day fast, feeding on fat and faith and failure. And one evening, praying instead of eating, worshipping what I did not know, what I did not know spoke to me, telling me to feed my hunger. I was 17, or 20, or 45, or 9, and zeal was eating me alive. When I heard the voice, I was sitting on the ground, wrapped around an instrument. I had rid the room of imagery, believing that reading and not eating would be enough. There was the sound of my stomach growling and the sound of nails scratching strings on a guitar. There was the sound of whatever made that starving beast start feeling. And it just taps immediately into desire, into what's really going on beneath the surface of niceties and appearances. and Yeah, and control. Yeah. Somehow this beast was needing to be unleashed with its own hungers. The beast wasn't in control either, but um, I was trying to calm it down. All the meanwhile, I was kind of enraging it, I think. Yeah. Um, a, a comment I've mentioned before that is one of my favourites from Sue is that life will always out is something you often say, Sue, that you can't stop life. It's going to bubble up. It's going to come out. And there's something beautiful of that in, in that particular poem, isn't there? This sense, Sue, that we can't push things down forever. They're going to keep finding a way out. And there's just a, a truth-telling, which is what we were referring to earlier, the truth-telling and also a very embodied... I mean, there's a lot of images there. It's a very embodied poem, which actually... 
you know, saying, what do I love about your work? That's, that's a big part of it. I think it's, it's, um, you know, for women particularly, women aren't always allowed, particularly in church life, to feel really at home in their bodies. And that kind of message is, is such a liberating thing. And the um, part of this poem that I love is that it, it's, it's very incarnate poem. It's actually being very real in your body as you are, and it's being truthful about who you are. Mm. What has your relationship, Podrick, with desire been as someone who from such an early age has been told maybe the strongest desires in you were not just unwise but sinful or of the devil or Mm. whatever else you might want to say what has that done to your lifelong relationship with with desire well i'm not unique in this that um, desire and shame have a complicated relationship um, and shame is a particular form of attention. You know, shame shuts you down, but also focuses you on the thing that's shutting you down. Um, it tells you a singular story about yourself that you, A, don't want to believe, but B, clearly do believe. And so um, I, think, I think there's a lot of people who, for whom the question of sexual desire uh, and shame have had a long-standing relationship. Uh, a destructive, um, fruitless relationship, one that leads to a lack of fluency with the body, with yourself, with others, um, in friendships, in erotic connections, that there can be a, a sense that there's a body language that wishes to speak, but you're not fluent in your own mother tongue of your body language. And that, I think, is... I, I'm not unique in that, but the lie of that kind of shame is that it does isolate, and uh, often you feel alone in that, even though... You can say to a room like this, that, and I can see. People are like, oh yeah, of course, me too. And there's no assumption that we all share a sexual orientation or a gender within that. These kinds of experiences um, go, go across all, all, of, all of human sexuality and gender. Um, so I think, it, for me, the question of desire, of course, desire isn't only about sex. It's also about what do you want and what's the relationship between what you want and what you're going to do and what you want and what it is you're going to try to pursue. And that has been a long and complicated relationship for me. Um, I'm, an, I'm an acquiescent person by nature, and so uh, it took me a long time to learn how it was to, be, to think about what do I want to assert and what does it mean to do that. And strength of language and poetry has been very important for me in that, is to exert some muscles when it comes to language and poetry that helps me then to think, oh, I like what language can do here. Mm -hmm. Conflict resolution as well, of course, has also been a very important thing to say. I want us all to sit down, and I want you to be quiet while this person speaks, and just to begin to name that. Those those two are instances of flexing the muscle of the language of desire, just to say, this is what I want. And there is a way in all of that that the, the broad human erotics of language, which is to imagine what what reciprocality and power and exchange can do, that has all been uh, an important practice when it comes to thinking about desire. Reminds me um, just of how dysfunctional (laughs) some of our understanding of ourselves has been. Um, We we read in um, some of the Pauline writings and even in John's Gospel, the, the dichotomy between flesh and spirit mm-hmm. and so the idea that uh, 
it, it, it tends to get read through the platonic sort of framing that we've inherited that, that there's this spiritual identity that is pure and beautiful and then the flesh is, everything to do with the flesh is to be rejected. Um, and you know, in the Anglican framing, you know, the, the first article of religion, which some parts of our denomination are really passionate about sticking to, the first article of religion says that God is impassable without feeling. <laughs> that is just ridiculous. But then if, if we think that God is without feeling and then we are perfectly made in the image of God, that means we're, we're sort of meant to be uh, striving for some form of stoicism where we just separate ourselves from our own experience. And that's amazingly debilitating. And there's all those mixed up messages about sacrifice and denial. Yeah. You know, and, and sacrifice, I, I really believe, is something that we never get away from. It's something in our human imagination that's incredibly strong but misunderstandings of sacrifice are so damaging. You know, I think uh, the understanding of sacrifice as generative is there uh, in our tradition, but we've instead leaned into this sacrifice as self-negation, self-denial, and, and all of these things are running around in, in the stories that are inhabiting our, our religious faith and practice. Yeah. I think for me, like I'm not under the halls of belief. I'm just next door. Um, listening to the sounds, smelling the smells, um, but I'm not, I'm not under the hall of religion. Uh, but I, uh, I suppose to think of the idea of the word God in literature is always to think, who's writing that? Who's, who's writing that character? And mm -hmm. the way that the character called God in a piece of literature is written is always an indication about the writer. And so rather than, I mean, I don't, I don't really know what it means, any of these things, flesh, spirit, I mean, spirit comes from the word spirare, meaning breath, which is about lungs. But these dichotomies just are meaningless to me. Um, I, I have no interest in them. And also the idea of being in the image of God, I think that God's in the image of us. And the question is, is who do we think we are? And therefore, what, what created God are people imagining in order to justify who they think should or shouldn't be alive? That, for me, is the question about how religion is used, usually, as to who it is whose life is valued and who it is whose life is devalued by law. And that is how I'm interested in thinking about conjugating the word God in public, not about any destination in the hereafter, but about who it is, whose life is it that's deemed worthy and whose life is it that, that's deemed worthless um, in the here and now. And often God is com the, the word God is complicit in that mm. by the people who use the word God in public. Mm. 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 It's very interesting. You, you've spoken um, a bit about this movement from being very much a religious person to someone who, as you say, sits next door now. I, I'm curious, if I asked you what it is you think you have moved away from and maybe what it is you feel you've moved closer towards. Do you have a sense of articulating that or not really? Not really. I mean, here's the thing. is like at the age of 11, my mother told me a story, which is untrue, but it has been true for me. Um, she told me a story about a saint, Saint Therese of the Little Flower, a French saint, that she um, died in absolute obscurity and that she was a child saint and died at 19 or 20 or whatever. And my mother said to me, she died in, with, with no faith because God had taken it away from her. And she, my mother said that experience of the absence of things was what it was that she, she had to be faithful to. 
Now, I don't think that's accurate, but at the age of 11, in terms of the story of that particular saint, but it's, it's what my mother had picked up from somebody and picked up from somebody, and I heard that, and I have never forgotten it. And so I, I was always attracted, whenever I heard a quote from Meister Eckhart or Julian of Norwich or people who spoke about the the fact that, of course, we don't know what we're talking about when we, mm. when we speak about what it is that's beyond. Of course, we don't know what death is. Like, how could we know that? Um, I've always found that language really freeing. Um, I did try, usually out of fear, I think, for a long time to fit in to a certain form of devotion. But I was always turning back to language that was saying, of course, we don't know. Mm. That's why poetry, which... Mm. Poetry has its problems, and it, uh, but it, um, it is not proposing this is what you have to believe. And I like the humility of that. One of the things I don't like is the arrogance of a certain religious language that says you have to believe this. Mm. I, I find that to be limiting to the imagination. So poetry has been a nurture for me all of my life. And the poetry of the, the way of not knowing. Too. Mm. I'm not saying there isn't a God. I'm also not saying, I'm just kind of saying, how would I know? <laughs> and, and what could language do to help? I'm interested in prayer. I'm interested in meditation. I'm interested in places like this that have been a sanctuary for great goodness, I hope. Um, so those things interest me. But the question about what's beyond, I suppose what's changed for me is the ease and comfort to say what I always thought without yeah. fear. Yes, that's brilliant. I'm just envious of a Catholic upbringing where, as an 11-year-old, you might be given a female saint who talks about the absence of God. I mean, I, I just think that wasn't in my upbringing. <laughs> wow. Well, you, you have a beautiful quote that you um, shared in a New Yorker interview with you, uh, I think that was earlier this year or late last year, about prayer, where you said you are interested in prayer, but what you're interested in is where prayer comes from, not so much where prayer might be going. Yeah. And I just thought, or, or who prayer might be too, I just thought it was a beautiful encapsulation of this idea that, that what we're talking about in this space is some sort of expression of, of what's really going on inside of us. And, and it's interesting that for many, and certainly know for myself, but I know I speak probably for, for many in this front, that the religion we've been handed distances us from what's really going on inside of us. It's more about repressing, shutting down, avoiding um, yeah. what we were handed growing up, avoiding the, the deep truths to the point, I actually had this memory of working with high schoolers a few years ago and, and um, they'd been told all year, you know, as you do when you're nearing the end of school, what do you want to do next? What do you guys want to do next? And I remember there was this, this um, young man who came to see me and he said, I figured out what I want. And I said, what's that? And he said, I want to know what I want. <laughs> I thought it was a noble really, endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I it was a really him. interesting yeah. comment, just yeah. that he was so distanced from his desire that his desire was to know his desire. Yeah. I think we've all been there. Mm. Uh, around the time when I was coming out and uh, to myself, really, and needing to think about what that was going to mean, I, I've, I haven't slept well for years, decades, really. So I'm often awake in the middle of the night. And so this is in Dublin. I walked to Clontarf. I was living in Drumcondra. Walked to Clontarf and walked out to North Strand, to the North Wall, if anybody knows it. And it's, I suppose I got there at about uh, half past two in the morning. And I took off all my clothes. And there's a big, um, there's a big statue of Mary, Reltnamara, um, Star of the Sea, looking out over this kind of factory-strewn bay in Dublin. 
And I just shouted, I'm so lonely. And there was something about having been naked and speaking the truth in the dark in an unpretty beach with the smell of oil and factory lights glowing. That's, that's, that came from the place where prayer comes from mm-hmm. and the place where poetry comes from. Mm-hmm. Prayer, prier in French, just means to ask. And I suppose at the heart of that asking was, is there anybody else like me? Am I alone? You know, can I have a friend? Um, can I not feel... Can I belong to a world where this isn't so lonely? Um, th- that, that was, that's, a, that's an answer to me, a theological answer about the question of prayer. Because it was an existential experience mm-hmm. and it was in the body. And I it was feeling like a total fool, you know, <laughs> exhausted and insomniac and naked and freezing in the middle of the night. And at the same time, there was nothing else I could have done. Mm. Um, Whatever prayer is, it has to include that. Mm. You know, I remember being young and, and in church and always gravitating, being most compelled by the Thursday, Easter Thursday, passages of Jesus in the garden and that line about, if this cup can pass for me and could you not wait with me one hour and almost hearing this lonely um, human and, and it just felt the most relatable that the character of Jesus was at any point in the Gospels was that Thursday night as he felt loneliness and fear and, and it made me think about how much of the, the idea of the character of Jesus we are given is devoid of humanity, devoid of desire, devoid of all these sorts of things um, which is where we might move to your next poem that you've written called Jesus Fantasizes. Um, which is a, a beautiful exploration of looking at this character of Jesus and I think maybe giving him back his humanity in a sense. Could you speak a little bit about that and, and read that for us? One of the best things for me about curiosity about Jesus is stopping believing in him because I can think what I want about him. And I like the idea that he would like to think what he wants about himself. Um, there's so much of the story of Jesus of Nazareth is caught up in this Here's what was going to happen, and here's what he knew was going to happen, and here's the outcome. What, what an extraordinarily boring story that is. I am curious about somebody who was interested in the day, who was surprised, who was changed, who was challenged, who was irritated. And, um, yeah, so I, I've been interested in thinking about him as a character for a long time. And a friend of mine um, challenged me to write poems about Jesus in the first person. I was like, you're joking. I'm never going to do that. Anyway, I tried. So here's one. Um, This is Jesus of Nazareth speaking. Jesus fantasizes. It's the de-sexing that bothers me. As if I never had a boner or some lust. As if I had so much of God's business to consider that I never wanted kisses or a nail run down my back. I woke every morning the way men wake every morning. I sought some comfort in some touch and thought that much could be achieved if people made more love more often. I think I'd have made a pretty average father, by which I mean okay, by which I mean I wish. I would like to age. I would like to watch my children grow. I would like to hold on to a body. 
It's a beautiful, beautiful um, poll in that one. You read that this afternoon at the seminar we've been at, and it stuck with me. I mean, we, the Christian tradition speaks of this fully human, fully God character, um, but the fully human stuff never seems to really be in there. And then you read that, and, and it's something something is restored. And mm. I am um, I am curious when we look at Scripture this way, and you say you've moved away from the the religious uh, really religiosity maybe that you had for many years. What I wouldn't call it religiosity. I would say I would say devotion. Yeah, it's devotion. I, I don't want to put a bad spin on it, um, but yeah, there was fear and devotion mixed up. Now, strangely, I I look with something else, wonder maybe or curiosity, but it makes it asks ethical demands of me. But yeah, I feel much freer. Sorry to interrupt, but it's it, like religiosity is a word that I hear people use. I don't really know what it means. Um, yeah. Well, I am curious at any rate with this movement. In a sense, it seems as if it gives you permission to actually engage with totally. these stories and these texts, not as this, you know, kind of heavy thing. That but if you get it wrong, you're going to get the test results back with a fail on the back of it. But <laughs> yeah. but just like any other story, you can actually engage with it. But what is that? What what freedom does that give you when you're reading them? Well, I like literature. Um, I, I, I like the idea of asking if I didn't feel the need to be, and I don't this, but if I didn't feel the need to have devotion to this text, would I read it anyway? So like my single favorite book is A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth. Um, it's, a single, it's the longest single volume novel in the English language. I've read it nine times. I love it. Absolutely amazing. I miss the characters when I haven't read it for a few years. Um, and so I turn to that because uh, it, it turns to me. I, I, I love it. it. It's electrifying, you know. Um, I look at the poetry of Lorna Goodison or Kai Miller or Emily Dickinson or Patrick Kavanagh or Marie Howe or Australian poet Kevin Hart and just think when I, there's times when I'm hungry for what it is those poems can do and what they give back to you. And I, I, there's a part of my body that needs the sound of those words being pronounced in my mouth. And I want to turn to religious texts for the quality of their art, not for the fear of hell, or not for the fear of whatever it is, or not because I feel like I have to, or because it's a good plan B. And I, I love the, the brazen bruta brutality of much of what the Bible says. Like Jesus of Nazareth stands up on a boat as the sea is going wild and he says the word in Greek is best translated into English as be muzzled. Like you muzzle a rabid dog. So what is it that needs to be muzzled? And if that was accurate to what he'd said in Aramaic and then was put into some kind of through memory, put into some kind of Greek, what an interesting person to use a word like muzzle in public. I want to say to him, talk about muzzle, go. Uh, I want the freedom to be able to ask those kinds of questions. And belonging to religion and, and trying to fit into devotion gave me no intellectual freedom, gave me no intellectual freedom for that. It might for others. I'm not proposing any way to anybody. Do what you want. Um, but the question for me is, what do you want? And what I want is the electrifying power of language to, to allow truth to be exchanged. 
And I feel much freer to exchange truth with that literature the further I am from the halls of religion. I, I read the texts much more than I ever did before. I memorize them. <laughs> and it allows stories to do what stories do then. Like the, the characters become, like you say, you return to a book you love with characters you love and you miss them because they're moving yeah. towards you. Mm-hmm. And Bible stories, you know, the, the scriptures also have incredibly strong characters that if you let them live... And then you might notice, what if, what if, you know, what did that character who has a very small part play? What were they thinking then? What could have been going on there? And then you, you see it in an entirely new way. I love that poem in your Poetry Unbound volume um, that takes the Lot's wife story, you know, and actually you say, of course she looked back. You know, I, I just think to actually embody some of those stories and let them play out, that's when they actually play out then in your own life. There's something that happens and you find that resonance with that story. You know, whether it's scripture, whether it's fiction, that's what good stories do. Yeah. It's interesting you were talking about, uh, well, we were talking about the way that Jesus' humanity has been subdued in, in certainly the way we read some of the biblical literature. And I was just thinking about how often in the last 2,000 years different literature, again, has tried to restore that humanity. And so... In the Gnostic tradition, there were lots of stories about Jesus having a relationship with Mary Magdalene, and, mm. and novelists over the years of you know the Last Temptation of Christ and those sort of books of where people have really thought there's got to be more to this person than we get from the sort of sanitized version of him, um, and so they've been taking taking the text, doing it almost like a midrash and making it live again with added details of the human struggle, um, picking up on sort of what Don was saying, the struggle in the garden is, is writ um, larger into the story so that there's actually Jesus wrestling mm-hmm. with uh, what this whole thing is all about and wrestling with himself, wrestling with his understanding of himself, wrestling with his understanding of God his relationship to others, and I think um, literature in a way always has a way of coming back at us and saying, you haven't done enough yet, here's, here's, another, here's another look. And then often our response to that is to say, oh, we can't, we, can, we can't be thinking about Jesus having a relationship, so we'll just ban that literature altogether. I mean, where my imagination goes to in this conversation is away from the question of Jesus and into the question of what do I do on a difficult night? Um, what do my friends do on a night when someone's struggling? Um, who do you get in touch with? Um, who do you ask for help from? What's it like if that doesn't come? How do you reach out? Um, how do we find a way to check in with friends? That, that's where I go to when it mm. comes to that. And I want literature that helps me honor the fact that all of us here um, are people who at one time or another have needed to do that or have had somebody get in touch with us who needs help. And I, I, want, I want the way I read to honor that and to, to give me the courage that when I'm the one needing to get in touch to, um, to do that and to give me the way of reading that when that text comes in or when that thought comes to my mind to go, I wonder how they are, to follow that. Because that's the literature too. That's the literature of intuition, to, to follow that and to, to get in touch, to, be, to make it easy to say, hey, I was just thinking of you. Um, that is how I'm interested in the orientation of language and in the orientation of communication, to, to make poetry of that kind of connection, 
mm. um, and then to see what happens. Um, it might be that somebody goes, I'm in great form, lovely to hear from you, wait till I tell you this brilliant thing, lovely. Or it might be that somebody says, I'm glad to hear from you, um, I was wondering if I could hear from someone, you know. That is, I think, that's where I go to when I, when I think of the, the, you know, the texts that you're talking about, they speak about a person at the end of themselves, wondering, will anybody support me? And what other options do I have? Mm-hmm. That's all of us at some stage of our life, or lots of stages of our life. And I want to be oriented toward that in today. And uh, that's what I hope my reading can do. Mm. It makes me think, in your book, In the Shelter, you speak about something a little bit later on in that story, not much later on, but um, what we would consider the betrayal of Judas. And, and I very much had that, that moment reading this book because... As a human being, if you've been a human being in the world, you've probably had some people hurt you, let you down, you've made some villains, you know, you can think of the people at work and they're the problem and whatever it might be. And, and you write about the character of Judas, how much that story changes with the insight that most people are doing what seems most reasonable to them most of the time. And suddenly that story of Judas took on an entirely new, alive meaning for me in the world because I thought of the people who in my mind I'd written off as unprofessional, unkind, uh, maybe, I don't know, I think um, it's sometimes fun to sit around and go, well, they've clearly got this psychotic disorder and they've got that one and about the people you don't particularly like. And, and reading that made me think, no, that, that insight actually then was speaking into my life, not this insight about who's the Judas and who's the Jesus. Those characters just formed... I suppose, um, characters on the stage to tell the truth about, about me today. Yeah. I mean, the Judas story is just a repetition of a, a great theme of literature and drama and film, you know, betrayal by somebody close to you. And um, it's a subtly told story. There's all kinds of interesting language used. And to, to demonize that character, I think, is to miss the possibility of being Judas yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, to also think that Judas was only one thing. Mm-hmm. Judas was many things. Mm-hmm. And I don't trust the people who wrote about him. Anytime they write about him, they're like, Judas, the betrayer. Mm-hmm. And then they go on, like, <laughs> my God. I mean, would you trust that person if they were writing about you? Um, I wouldn't. Uh, I'm interested in thinking, who was this character? And therefore thinking, who, who am I when I'm Judas? Um, I'm thinking about the pain of when you feel betrayed by somebody you love or thinking about the complication when you go, I think that person feels like I betrayed them and, or when I simply have betrayed somebody. Um, those are existential themes in human relationships and I, I want the literature to turn me towards the complexity of that mm. and, and hopefully to the courage of language to, to be able to say, I betrayed you, um, to have the, the strength of character to say that when I have or the... The, the language to explore maybe the subtlety of that when it's when it's less mm. straightforward. Mm. Well, the text has its own subtlety in it. And of course, that, it does. Um, the Greek word means more to hand over than mm. to betray. So it's almost that Jesus, um, Judas, is caught up in a drama that, and he, I suspect, he thought he was doing the right thing until he discovered he hadn't, which is where the real dramatic shift happens where he realizes that instead of being someone who was bringing the kingdom into being, he was actually someone who he actually ends up destroying Jesus. And I think that's where he actually makes the pivot from... Except he doesn't know that he does that because he's, no. he's ended his life even before Jesus is dead. 
That's true. in Matthew's yeah. Gospel. Or at least he's handed him over, yes. Yeah. That's true. He's that's uninterested true. in money as well. He's thrown the money back. That's right. That's so right. That, he's, he's a, he's very, a very sophisticated yeah, character. Yeah, I think so. So he, he doesn't mm. know what happens. No. But it is an example of how often, until you look at the text properly, you know, you're given a surface mm, reading, mm. you're giving an archetype of the betrayer, mm. you know, the villain or whatever, you know, and we have all these archetypes carrying on in our heads um, and that we identify in our lives. But until you actually go back, I've found numerous occasions, particularly with scripture, but, you know, elsewhere too, where this is the thing that I've been told. And then you go, hang on, mm. <laughs> something actually, actually, it's not like that. And, and yet we, we actually need to dive deeper into the text rather than step away from it, um, you know, have a closer look. And yeah. it so often surprises you. Mm. Yeah. In the west end of the cathedral, we have 23 figures from the Jesus story, mm. including Judas. And the, uh, the sculpture insists on having a real-life model for each of her figures because otherwise they end up looking like uh, sort of aliens or sort of humanoid. And um, Judas is... I, I'm the model for Judas. Mm. So I'm with him. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that part of in the shelter, it did make me think, as we've been t- talking about here, that in my life any experience of being betrayed, it wasn't as if those people who betrayed me in my story, woke up that day, checked the calendar and had Betray Dom Faye <laughs> written on the calendar for the day, you know. The yes. <laughs> and when I have betrayed, I didn't wake up and think, all right, I've got to do my grocery shopping and then I've got to betray Steve and then I've got to go to the movies. Like it's, it's so much more nuanced and motives and desires and fears and, and all of these things are mixed in such a more complex way than, um, than we probably give them credit for. Yeah. Speaking of that, and all the different ways that um, our desires and motives might be mixed, uh, we might move to the, the next poem of yours, which does creatively imagine a character um, in the, the Easter story. Um, this poem is Same Old, Same Old. Can you talk a bit about that one? Yeah, it's a new poem. I was asked to speak on Good Friday um, at a church in New York, and I thought I would write some new poems for the Stations of the Cross. And so this is a poem um, for the Station of the Cross where Jesus is nailed to the cross. And it's a pantoum, which is a Malaysian form that takes eight lines, and then you repeat each line once, um, so it turns it into a 16-line poem. And it's written in the voice of the person who's doing the nailing. Same old, same old. It's a tough job, but who else is going to do it? Get up in the morning, stretch a bit, wake the kids, make the breakfast, make them eat the breakfast, put it away, get them ready, get them out the door, get them educated. Get up in the morning, stretch a bit, wake the kids. They need jobs. I don't know what the future holds. Get them ready, get them out the door, get them educated. Each day is the same old, same old. Do this, do that. They need jobs. Who knows what the future holds? Today's a Nazarene. Tomorrow it'll be Barabbas. Each day, the same old, same old. Do this, do that. The boss is a bastard. What are you going to do? Today's a Nazarene. It'll be Barabbas soon. Make the food, eat the food. Put away the, you know what, it's a tough job. The boss is a dangerous fool. What can I do? If I didn't do it, who'd buy the food? 
Yeah, there's so much life suddenly unlocked in this story that um, just it makes it much more than the two-dimensional sort of caricature that you, you do get. Sure. Um, in some way, that the, there's a strong argument that you're more loyal to the tradition in this way than, than maybe sure. those who give it a two-dimensional reading um, because you, you really do bring it to life. Yeah. I mean, this poem, like the, the references to the boss, that's about Pontius Pilate um, as well as Herod and then up towards the Roman Emperor um, because <coughs> crucifixion was a, a Roman torture device and so like today a Nazarene, tomorrow it'll be Barabbas that whole drama is played out on who do you want to be freed this fella or this fella you know, they're both screwed that's the whole point everything's a charade in that situation the whole thing is a public manipulation and a charade and so, in a certain sense, this fellow who's doing the nailing, he knows what it's like to work for the empire. He's like, nah, both of them are screwed. Your man Barabbas has been released today, not for long. He'll be back in. Um, and, and therefore, the look at public manipulation, in a certain sense, it's a, it's a look at spin and spin doctoring and, and, and hyper-lying language in public. And this fellow knows what's going on and also feels powerless. Mm-hmm. So, mm. I course. like him. Yeah, it's going to say it takes us to all those other situations, which is what poetry does too. Is in, in that intersection, it takes us to all those other situations, where there's the people who are running the show who know what's going on, and then there's people who are actually doing it who have their hands dirty, who feel powerless. Mm. And you start to make, you know, those, you know, and this is the the value of diving into a story and seeing it from those different lenses. As we speak about poetry in this conversation, I'm I'm intrigued by the idea that I've heard a couple of people talk of before with poetry of. The idea that there are some truths that you can only get at via the sideways glance, that if you stare at something dead on, you miss something about it. And, um, you know, I often say this about, you see this a lot in the world with dating apps, that one of the issues of dating apps, I think, is that you try to organically fall in love in a direct job interview style. And it's sort of something that generally happens more so via the sideways glance. You fall into it rather than plan your way into it. Mm. But what, what is it about poetry do you think that has that power that capacity to maybe unlock truths that we weren't even aware of in the same way you know if I asked you to stand up and deliver an essay on the man who nailed the nails into Jesus's hands and feet probably wouldn't have the same sort of unlocking power so what is it about poetry do you think Emily Dickinson has a great line when she says tell all the truth but tell it slant I really like that line um I don't know. I mean, poetry is a strange thing. I started writing poems when I, was, when I was 11, and I needed to write them. Sometimes I wrote poems in code and then forgot what the code meant, so I couldn't understand my own code. But I, I needed some kind of dialogue with a text that was looking back at me. And so while on the one hand you want something that will tell the truth, even, even if it's telling a slant, on the other hand, a poem, when you've written it, is something you look at and it looks back at you and you're thinking, where did that come from? What does it mean? I'm confused by it, but yet I need it. it there's, a, there's a mystery to any art that you create as well as uh, a certain sense of control because I've written it or I've edited it or I've put it into a shape. You know, um, There is the known and the unknown that's present in any, in any work of art, whether that's music or etc. A mixture between skill and ache and uh, that is what it is for me. Often I think people are looking, when you're looking for a poem in public, is something that helps you feel, 
some poem that can be a container for feeling. And when it can be a container for feeling, that can be enough. You're not looking for it to be sufficient, to be perfect, to be filled with certitude, to predict the future. You're looking for a poem that can make you go, it helped me feel, and it helped me feel alongside other people who felt. Or I heard myself groan with a small movement of, of emotion at the same time as somebody else, um, a little ache. And that's part of the work of the poem, perhaps. Um, Paul Durkin, a great Dublin poet, was asked to write a poem um, in elegy after the, Oma, after the Oma bomb, a bomb that killed 32 people in, um, in 1998, a couple of months after the Good Friday Peace Agreement. And uh, he delivered this elegy, and the first movement of the poem was just to name every single town that the 32 victims of the murder were from. Madrid, Madrid, Dublin, Belfast, Carrickmacross. That was it, just 32 names. And then the next movement of the poem was just to name the ages of everybody. 80, 18 months, 32, 57. And what he did is he, it was public lament and public outrage, and it brought feeling to the surface, and it was so simple and so painful. It hurt, and you also didn't want him to stop. And that, I think, is what you're looking for in poems, to say the sparse thing that can hold something more. Like a poem is filled with empty. Every page of a poem is mostly filled with much more empty than it is with ink. And that's, I write, to shape the empty. Um, and I take as much out as I can because what I want is enough empty to be able to hold the ache that the poem is gathered around. And that ache might be an ache of joy or it might be uh, an ache of pain or an ache of rage or desire. It can be anything, but it is, or hunger, it can be an ache and, and I want the space to be big enough to hold it. And I, I think we all know that. Nobody's looking for a poem to tell you the future, but you are looking for a poem to help you to feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I think so much of our efforts in pain are to get out of pain <laughs> and um, find the quickest route away from the pain. And a lot of religion does this with, you know, their version of prayer being about a begging something to escape from the pain. Mm -hmm. Why is, is the desire to escape I don't want to use the word wrong. It's not quite the word I want to use, but it's the only one coming to mind. But the, the wrong way to channel pain. I don't know if it is. I mean, like, I don't know. When I'm in pain, I want it to stop as well. <laughs> you know, um, I, I, I'd much rather it stop than have to do the work of writing a poem about it or, or letting the long work of time work its way out. <laughs> um, Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was accused of writing escapist literature. And he said, um, escapism isn't such a bad thing if you find yourself in prison. And <laughs> I, I love uh, the wisdom of that, to yeah. just kind of go, a bit of escapism is, is no terrible thing. Yeah. Um, but one of the things you know with certain pain mm -hmm. is that um, you can't escape it, it follows. And so therefore we have art to help us bear it. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I probably the, tra the trajectory for me is denial, escapism, <laughs> resentment, art. 
And so <laughs> eventually I get there. So like, it's not like a moment of pain comes and I'm like, oh, thank God, material for a poem. Magnificent. Nah. No, I, I think, don't want to be in pain. I don't want other people to be in pain. Mm. I think um, when you were talking, Dom, I think it's not the desire to escape that's the problem. It's often the solutions we apply. The idea of trying to pat it down uh, or take the feeling out of it or to... You know, um, to future cast. So I think I think the desire to be free of pain is quite legit, but it's the way we treat it that's the problem. Mm. Mm. Well, as we look to wrap up, we have one more poem you're about to read. Before we do that, um, for those who would like to to track down your books, your your collections of poetry and your other writings. What's the, the best way to stay in touch with you and, and find all of those resources? Um, I have a website and the books that are available are kind of mentioned there and then you can just buy them wherever you buy books. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, the, the final poem that we're going to get you to read here to close out our conversation, uh, it actually kind of has two titles, this one, doesn't it? Yeah. So it, it looks like How to Belong, is the title, but the word belong is crossed out. And then instead of belong, be alone is in there. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between belonging and being by yourself. And my relationship with myself, I think, might help me be a better friend to other people. And the more that I can have a certain relationship with being alone, I'm not talking about isolation or existential loneliness. That's, some, that's something I, I hope we have friends. <laughs> you know, uh, but I do think that there is... Uh, for me it's been important to try to learn how to be alone and that by being a little bit better at being alone I can be a little bit of a better friend so, so how to be alone it all begins with knowing nothing lasts forever so you might as well start packing now in the meantime practice being alive there will be a party where you'll feel like nobody's paying you attention. And there will be a party where attention is all you'll get. What you need to do is to remember to talk to yourself between these parties. And again, there will be a day, a decade, when you won't fit in with your body even though you're in the only body you're in. You need to control your habit of forgetting to breathe. Remember when you were younger and you practiced kissing on your arm? You were onto something then. <laughs> Sometimes harm knows its own healing. Comfort too. Kindness needs no reason. There is a you telling you another story of you. Listen to her. Where do you feel anxiety in your body? The chest? The fist? The dream before waking? The head that feels like it's at the top of the swing or the clutch of gut like falling? and falling, and falling, and falling. It knows something. You're dying. Try to stay alive. For now, 
Touch yourself. I'm serious. Touch yourself. Take your hand and place your hand someplace upon your body and listen to the community of madness that you are. You are such an interesting conversation. You belong here. Rodrigo Tima, thank you so much. Pleasure. Mm -hmm.